Welcome to the Brave Parenting Podcast, an examination of the Bible and how parents can apply God's Word to raising kids in a culture saturated with media and technology. We look at everyday issues from a biblical worldview so that you can trust the sufficiency of Scripture and apply its truth to your life as you raise and disciple your kids. Hello, Brave Parents. Kelly Newcomb, founder of Brave Parenting here, and I am so excited to introduce you to our guest today. Sam Langebon is a college senior at Texas A&M while also taking seminary classes at Dallas Theological Seminary. Sam grew up in the same church I attend, and he's actually been an intern under our lead pastor. He has taught our high schoolers, our middle schoolers. He's even preached to our entire adult congregation. He actually went to school with some of my older kids, and while I knew of him and I knew of the respect and admiration all the young students have for him, and I even know his parents, this was actually our first conversation. But it was so great, I know and am confident that this is not going to be our last. You know, sometimes we wonder who will lead the church when the older generations die off and it's easy to be disenchanted because so many young people have walked away from the faith or rejected Christianity before they could even hear the gospel. It seems that there are so few young people interested in the faith, in the church that are being called into missions and seminary. But Sam is an example that God is still working and moving in mighty ways in Gen Z. We should really be encouraged and reminded that because God is in control, he's also proven to be sovereign, sovereign over every culture, every civilization, and every circumstance. We can trust him that he is going to raise up the leaders that the next generation needs. But at the same time, while we trust God to do what we cannot, we as parents must do what we are called to do, and that is to raise up our children in the knowledge and discipline of the Lord, to teach them about our Savior, Jesus Christ, and to cultivate holy habits that will produce the fertile ground for the Spirit of God to move and draw them into salvation. That is our responsibility. All right, y'all, I don't want to waste any more time. Here is Sam Langebon and my conversation with him on the benefits of of Bible and theological training at an early age with some bonus questions about how he handles online media content. All right, here we go. Sam, welcome to the Brave Parenting Podcast. So happy to have you here. To get started, will you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Yes. uh, Thank you so much for having me on. I don't take it lightly and um, really look up to y'all's ministry and what you're doing here. Uh, My name is Sam Langenbaum. I'm currently a senior at Texas A&M University. Uh, and I'm also a student at Dallas Theological Seminary. I had the privilege of serving on staff at a church and college station called Central Church. I've uh, been there about a year and a half and plan on staying until graduation this upcoming May. I was born and raised in Bernie, Texas, uh, in my opinion, the greatest city uh, in the country. Uh, I'm the middle child of a family of five. I have a brother named Will who now lives in Dallas and has recently got married. And I have a little sister whose name is Lily, and she's a sophomore up at Texas A&M with me. And then I have two awesome God-fearing parents. Uh, My mom's name is Ashley. Uh, She works closely with the women's ministry down at Curry Creek Church in Bernie. And I have a dad named Bobby who serves as the adult discipleship pastor at Curry Creek. So they've both been pivotal in my life and in my spiritual journey. And I'm excited to get to share some of that with you today. That's awesome. You do have really fantastic family. I love your parents. Went to Israel with them in April and got to know them more. And so this it was really great. So, okay, you 
have preached to both students and adult congregations. I've heard you preach to both, and you're amazing. God has his hand on you, and it's really incredible. And even though you're not a parent, I know that you can really provide insight and encouragement that parents need when they want to raise up their children in the knowledge and discipline of the Lord, but it's hard, you know, and you, you know students well, you know God's word, and you know how the two of those come together. Whereas parents, we just have so much on our plate. We're at odds with culture, with online media content, managing all of that. And I think, honestly, they're a little bit at odds with themselves because maybe they don't have a solid biblical worldview. One of our past interviewers, um, she had said that they kind of are theologically impoverished. They don't have a lot of theological foundation and background to raise their kids up with that. And so it becomes hard, especially when culture is very hostile to Christianity, to raise kids up in that knowing how to interpret the Bible, how to understand theology and doctrine, and really just how to do that discipling your kids. So let's start with kind of your upbringing in the faith, and what are your earliest memories of learning about Jesus and the Bible? What stuck out in your heart? Like, what did you dismiss? How did that all get started for you? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, and one that is fun to look back on, because I'm just reminded of the Deuteronomy 6 passage where, where God gives Israel the command uh, in verses six through nine. He writes, these commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your house and on your gates. So, you know, I read that and that does not seem like some optional, you know, advice. Like if we ever have time, like that, that seems like a pretty... Uh, loving but direct command uh, from the Lord. And so uh, if we were to take that literally, uh, my mom and dad would have commands on their forehead. So obviously there's some there's some uh, literary devices there that we can interpret. But I think when I look back to my upbringing, the two biggest things that I remember um, were meals and devotionals. Um, meals were something that in the moment I didn't really understand, but there would be days we would eat breakfast all five of us at six in the morning, because some of us would have weight room practice or uh, we'd have to go to tutoring. And then there were nights where we would eat dinner together as late as 930 or 10 p.m., um, which totally inconvenienced my mom and what she would cook and my dad and his work schedule. But they would continually tell us that the best place to develop relationships and establish consistency as a family would be around the table eating together. And um, one thing that my pastor always tells me is that discipleship happens best, not at a coffee shop, but around a coffee table. And that's really stuck with me of some, there's something special, both with your children, but then also their children's friends of inviting them into your home, allowing them to see the interaction between the husband and the wife and how they parent. And I think that was the first thing that I noticed at a young age. And then the other was devotionals. Um, we did New Morning Mercies for a portion of years, and then we did Jesus Calling for a few years. And then as we got older, we would read just direct passages of scripture. And I just remember the, the kids hated it. Like we were we were so tired. We had already eaten our orange rolls and eggs or whatever was on the menu that day. And we just wanted to get to the next thing. And our our parents, they kindly just stated that this was going to be an expectation. And looking back, I'm so thankful that we had it because I, I fully think having those devotionals in the morning is is the number one reason 
I'm drawn to get in the word before I do anything else each day because it became so routine. It didn't become forced, but it was definitely fueled by my mom and dad. And and I'm eternally grateful for that. And I think my brother and sister would say the same. I love that so much that your parents really worked that meal schedule around your schedule. Yeah. As someone who loves and thrives on routine, it's hard (laughs) to change that and have that 930 dinner. Yeah, that's really hard. So that I love that. Now, what about growing up in the church? When you were in like, say, Sunday school classes or kids ministry, did that become like real? And and did the word become alive to you during that time? Or were they just stories? Mm. Yes, that's a good question. A little bit of both. Um, I think as a kid, the majority of it was stories, not because the teaching in the church lacked depth or theological accuracy, but it was more my spiritual immaturity and my just development as a as a human being in its entirety. So I think I remember these vivid Bible stories of like the judges and and some of these really old people in Genesis that that are talked about. Um, but as as a young child, I wasn't understanding why they were teaching these things. I just would understand there's a God who loves me, who loved me enough to send me a son, and that falls into this coherent story from Genesis to Revelation that involves a bunch of different characters with names I can't always pronounce. So I think it was more on me than on them. Um, but I think with both church leaders and parents, um, what I've seen is that you can't disciple or lead someone to a place you haven't reached or that you aren't currently in. And so I think as a teacher now, understanding like I'm not qualified or or permitted to command someone or encourage someone to do something that I don't practically do. Number one, because it's sin, because it's hypocrisy. But two, that's hindering my effectiveness as a minister and their spiritual health. If as someone leading them, I'm not able to do the very thing that I'm asking them to do. Yeah. I think I would assume that you would agree that as time went on and you learned through kids ministry at church, as well as like student ministry through middle school and high school, as well as having that combined training and being in the word at home, that it became real. Absolutely. 100%. And I think it was it was the school I was at in church helping confirm what my mom and dad had been trying to impress on us back at the home, not vice versa, where mom and dad were just dumping us off to youth group and school and saying, you know, good luck. Like they're going to teach you how to read. They're going to teach you how to study. Um, they, they were a supplement to that, but I think, I think the, the main course of kind of that meal and that, that beginning journey was from my mom and dad. And then knowing that I had a brother and sister who were trying to run the same race, just in a different capacity. And let's talk about your education. Did you go to Christian school? Did you go to public school? Yes. So I got a little bit of both, which, which I'm, I'm thankful for. I think you'd have to ask my mom. I think I dropped out of preschool. I don't remember that far back, but I think one day I just told her like, I don't like this. And somehow she let me, she let me quit. I don't know if she'd like to be hearing that, but I I can't try that anymore now that I'm in seminary or, or college. I don't think they'd let that pass. Um, but I went to a classical Christian school called Geneva for nine years um, from kindergarten through eighth grade. And I tell people often that what Geneva taught me in elementary school changed my life. I didn't know it in the in the moment, um, but I vividly remember us learning how to write, um, learning how to 
understand scripture and memorize scripture. I think scripture memory is is one of the most underrated and um, not talked about spiritual disciplines that that there is right now. And I I remember the first Bible I had, like I can close my eyes and think back to the color ink I underlined and where the passage was on the page, not because I was just leagues ahead of everyone else, but because they had this expectation of, of we understand the role and the stewardship that's implied with with raising up young children and in a educational capacity. And I think even God's word talks often about that of God and and more like his son um, caring for children and and making references about the kingdom pertaining to children. And I just look back on that and I'm so thankful that I was the recipient of such proper education. And in eighth grade, the Lord really began to lead me towards public school. I just started playing select baseball and I wanted to go do the college route. I thought I was much better than I ended up being. I was not very good. Like many eighth grade boys. Like many eighth grade boys. <laughs> yes. Maybe there's a chance. But I think the stats like you have a greater chance of being struck by lightning than going to the MLB. So prove me wrong, please, if you're an eighth grade boy listening to this. So I was in eighth grade and, you know, I was eating Lunchables at the time and had way too many crushes. But I just had this like awe of God and felt him leading me to public school to be a light and uh, to to practice all of the education and insight that I had gleaned from Geneva. And it was one of those things where I wanted God to meet me in this pasture in a dream and a deep voice be like, Sam, you shall go to Bernie High. And I just didn't get that. Uh, and I think he taught me a lot about what his will is and and the freedom that ensues and kind of making decisions at times. And so my parents let me go and I got four years of public education and outside of accepting Christ, I think that was the best decision we as a family have made together. It had its ups and downs and it, it was full of challenges, but it prepared me for college. And I think it taught me how to be around sin without giving into it. And also just this realization of like, I am not supposed to judge a non-believer as if they are a believer because one, we have different eternities and one party has the spirit of God living inside of them. And so the non-believer's job is to sin and they, they should be living gluttonous and, and, and impoverished and, and spiritually dead lives because they don't know better but they don't know because they haven't been told. And so it was this really convicting period of time of like, I've tasted and seen that God is good because his spirit has revealed himself to me. Now to sit on that and not share that is very unloving because there's going to be a day where they realize what these people were walking around saying they believed was actually true. Why in the world did they not tell me? I have a very similar experience of just that. When I went to college, I went as a Catholic, which I really didn't know what I believed. I just kind of went to church and I would see all these Christians and I loved, I just loved their spirit. I love their vibe, if you can say that. And they were always together and doing things with student ministry on campus. And one of them was one of my friends. And I remember thinking all the time, will you just share what that is? I don't, I don't know what that is, but never, never shared it. And it wasn't until I was 25 that someone did share the gospel and I really understood it. So what you're saying is not only, I mean, not only is it wise, but it is the truth of what we are called to do as Christians, is we cannot put our light under a basket and expect it to shine. We are to go into those places. And I think that's really encouraging for a lot of parents who maybe they don't have the choice 
to send their children to a private school. And it has to be public school, but you can still be a light. And what you said, sharing that insight of it's okay to be around sin, but not to partake in it. That's very wise. And that's definitely something that parents can can take with them and be encouraged by for sure. Now, let's talk though about any theological type of classes, because I think we're really lacking in biblical literacy and just understanding it. If you call yourself a Christian, do you actually know what that means? You know what Christian doctrine means? You know, the doctrine of original sin, all of that really informs our worldview. Was there one particular class when you were in your Christian school through eighth grade that really just made God's word come alive? Yes, I was in, I believe it was called historical theology or biblical theology. It was a, it was an eighth grade class at Geneva taught by a guy named Dr. Bracey. And he's, he's went on to be with the Lord. But the first day of class, he broke apart the word history and he, he separated into two words of his story. And the whole premise of the class was that history is, is this like process over time of God's redemptive plan and this idea of there being this grand meta narrative from the garden to today and pointing towards this new Eden where God will restore the earth and, and come rescue his bride. He just impressed that upon us and it blew our minds of like, we, we are so small. We are one person out of nearly 8 billion, but there is an infinite God who is madly in love with us and has offered to us the gift of eternal life. We were we were shocked at that. And and he made theology fun. And some people may hear that and like get annoyed, but like God delights in us learning about him, but he also delights in us enjoying that process. And so whether it's spending time in scripture or engaging in theological method or discourse, I think there's a lot of freedom in how we go about it. There's certainly right and wrong ways to do it. But he made it fun, and we were doing hangman with Bible characters on the whiteboard, and we were acting out different characters. And I think I'm thankful for what we learned with that idea of the grand meta narrative, because the postmodern movement completely rejects that, and that's a lot of what is being talked about and discussed, especially with Gen Z and and this middle school and high school generation, is this idea that there's not a grand meta narrative and everyone's experience is nearly objective to themselves. And this idea that there's one truth that belongs to God and is found not within us and what I want it to be, but outside of me seems very offensive. But the reality is that if, if God is the designer of truth, it's very selfish to think we can redefine what he has first defined. And to connect those two with the last question we think that it's loving to support people in things that the Bible speaks against, but the reality is it's actually unloving because I would rather have an unpleasant conversation with a non-believer sharing with them the good news than for them to find out about that, but be sentenced to an eternal destiny apart from him. And that sounds harsh, but realizing that what we learn at a young age impacts what we do and what we believe I think the understanding that theology is not just what you believe, it's also what you do, right? And like the the belief about God is naturally going to lead to my behavior for God. And I think sometimes when we think about theology, we just think about becoming wiser or this, this culmination of knowledge where we become more spiritually sound than everyone else. And, and I think 
I don't know who's responsible for misrepresenting that, but understanding that theology is is not just what you believe, it's also what you do really changes how we think and how we act. And, and I think that class in eighth grade really began to teach me that. I really believe that most adult Christians have yet to grasp that. And that contributes to a little bit of why we are where we're at today with children being so confused and so much objective truth being called reality. And that's why I, I really encourage parents. There are so many resources that I have shared throughout the past month in this Setup for School series of how you yourself can learn theology yourself. Just everyday people, YouTube channels, you name it, use the resources of media and technology that we have to train yourself up in those type of and that type of knowledge, because when you do grasp that, every adult that I know, when you grasp that meta narrative of scripture and you see the big picture of what God has been doing and your part in that, it does change your behavior and you come alive. And it, naturally, theology becomes awesome. It becomes fun. You can't get enough of it. I used to think, how can people just spend all day studying God's word? I thought that was the strangest thing when I first became a Christian. Like, that just seemed like something that couldn't happen. But no, when you grasp it and you understand it, that is, I think that's the part where you're saying it's fun because you just learn so much. And when parents can grasp that and get a hold of it, then it will naturally overflow into their children and we'll see changed behavior because we're going to see changed beliefs and change theology as, as young people think differently about God and think more rightly about God. Yeah, 100%. Couldn't agree more. So when did you begin reading your Bible independently, kind of by your own free will? What did that look like? You had mentioned earlier what motivates you is just the routine that your parents set up, but speak a little bit about that. Yes. I can think back to a, a pretty pivotal time. It was in the summer of 2018, and my dad and I were in Atlanta for a baseball tournament. And Again, we see this constant theme of baseball not going as planned. I had played horrible, and a lot of the scouts of the schools that I'd wanted to go play at, like were getting up and leaving as I was pitching. I mean, it was it was horrendous. Um, that could be its own episode. But I got back to the hotel, and clear as day, I think the Lord just put some desire in my heart to read through the Bible for the very first time. And so I'm in the hotel room. I find this six month chronological plan. And that summer, he began to completely change my life. And and there were there were parts of my Old Testament that were actually stuck together. Like, you know, the pastor's like, your Bible may be stuck together. Mine actually was. And I, you know, had different color pens. And I did what, you know, a bunch of the bunch of the high school people do now with like different colors mean different things. And I would annotate it. And, and I just I ate God's word and he completely changed my life through it. And I finished in Revelation. Uh, right around New Year's Day. And I just, again, felt this completely God-given confirmation of this is what I want to teach. And this is what I want to base my life on until the day I die, or as long as God permits me to. And it was a daunting call of like, this is going to be so hard and so scary and so unpopular, but it's also going to be so rewarding and so life-giving and hopefully life-changing to other people. And since then, I've tried to read through it um, each year. Um, I think with any kind of book, you you get better at reading. And so I think a lot of people are, are nervous about opening God's word. And, and I think there's a lot of danger in, in handing someone the Bible without 
educating them to an extent on on what it looks like to read. Um, because sometimes not reading the Bible can at times be more helpful than reading it wrongly. Um, because sometimes if, if we approach scripture with the poor hermeneutic or or don't really have the right interpretive skills, that can do more harm than good. Uh, my professor up in Dallas says that if the Bible can mean anything we want it to mean, it then means nothing at all. And that has stuck with me of both when I'm getting to teach younger students, really in my own study, grasping the meaning so that when we're communicating about it together, they're not hearing something wrong from the position of leadership. Because I think you look at social media uh, with blue check marks and hundreds of thousands of followers, that gives more credibility to a middle schooler or a high schooler when they're watching a sermon clip that's usually taken completely out of context. My heart hurts for them at times because it sounds great. But like we talked about at church a few months ago, sound teaching is not based and judged off what sounds best. Because honestly, what sounds best oftentimes may be the least sound, right? So it's this tough balance of God's word should instruct us on what sounds good. What sounds good should instruct us on what God's word says. And so I think that that summer of 2018 was was pivotal in my walk. And there's days today I wish I could go back to the awe and the reverence and the desire and craving I had for God's word back then. And it was just a really pivotal part in, in my spiritual journey. One of my, I'm getting my master's in biblical theology right now. One of my professors, you know, says scripture is not about you, but that's what everybody wants to believe. Like we're the main character. And that's one erroneous theological um, concept I think that parents can really change is that it's about Jesus. All of all of scripture is about Jesus. And we should never read a passage and say, how can I apply that at school today? Because it's about me. It's about me slaying my giants. And it's about me overcoming and my healing and all of this. We we can partake a part of that, but it is so much more. It is is really about Jesus. It is never, we are not that main character. Yes. And so I love what, what you had said, and I just, yeah, want to expound on that. So when we say about having accurate theology, we've talked about this. Is there a point, you know, was it when you started seminary classes or a college when you really had to think, okay, I need accurate theology. I need to be thinking the right thoughts about God. Was it earlier on because of your education in a private school? Um, talk a little bit about that. Honestly, I'm, I'm almost embarrassed to say this, but I think, I think within the last year is when I really began to understand the need to engage in, in theological study. And I think what changed is I read a book titled Who Needs Theology? And the, the book's entire premise was that all of us are theologians meaning all of us have thoughts about God and we engage in conversations about God. The bigger question is, are we are we good or bad theologians? And I think I had reserved that term for professors or adults or stuff like that. But then I realized, no, like that, that's a that's a position that the Lord invites us into. And so what's helped me this past year understand theology better is that it's it's studying what God has revealed to us, right? And so if God is only showing us what he has chosen to reveal. Theology is studying and it's partaking and discovering, okay, what has God chosen to reveal and what is the believer's response to that? And so I think with that, we're going to have some flawed interpretations of how God has chosen to reveal himself, whether it's our interpretation of his revelation through creation or through the word of God or through the word that came into the world being Jesus. And so one of my staff members, he says, we're all 20% heretical. We're just unsure of what 20% that is. 
And it's kind of convicting of like, as a, as a teacher, there are, there are things that I'm going to miss at times. And there's going to be areas I miss speak at at times. And I read James three and it says, not many of you should become teachers because you'll be judged with greater strictness. And I'm like, how do I teach that? You know, <laughs> cause it's, it's hard. It's convicting. Yeah, it is. So to be honest, like this past year is really, I think when I began getting to teach more and also start classes, I realized there's some seriousness and some weight to this um, that has eternal implications upon it. And that should make me fearful, but it should be a fear that mobilizes me and that doesn't paralyze me. And I think understanding the fear of God as we do theology is, is a pretty important aspect. I think that's a realistic expectation is that it doesn't come immediately. It doesn't come snap of the fingers or even easily. It is something you grow into, but it's something that you have to pursue. Accurate theology is not just going to come upon us if we're not in the Word. As a matter of fact, inaccurate theology is going to naturally come upon us. We're going to absorb it from all of the messages that we get from the world, from the media, from the culture. And so it does take a lot of intentionality of reading, not only God's Word, but we can read also books such as, such as you have, and I know that they have helped me tremendously as well. Let's shift gears and talk about some media and technology, because I've heard you speak to high school students, to middle school students, and you have a lot of wisdom in this, and I know that that can really help parents. So how has online media, smartphones, all of that, as you've grown up, so you would have graduated high school in 2020, and so that was a big year. I have um, some children all graduating around that time, and that was when smartphones just blew up in your middle school years. That was exactly when I started Brave Parenting because of some of the stuff that was going on when you guys were in sixth and seventh grade. Um, How has that presented challenges to you in maintaining and persevering in your faith? Goodness gracious. There's so many. Like it is, it is. It's a loaded question. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And I'll try to, I'll try to keep it uh, brief. I think there's, there's three categories that I struggle with and I think that others can relate to. So the first is the temptation category, which is which is the elephant in the room. And I think that James one, a lot of the times when we're tempted, uh, we, we act as if every minor temptation is like the spiritual attack or that for some reason, God has chosen to tempt us, which honestly goes against his nature and his character. So James one says we're, we're tempted when we're lured and enticed by our own desire. And the thing with desires is that they grow and if they're not kept and if they're not closely watched, they can really infest us from the inside out. And so I think the first question I ask myself is, is social media and is my use of it and my consumption of it positively or negatively affecting my desires and moving my desires in a way that's other than God and away from God? And the harsh part of that question is that there's never a neutral answer there. Um, every, every motive with social media is either to glorify God or to glorify myself or something other than God. And, and that's a, it's a tough question to ask, but one that I have to ask regularly. The second category is the distraction category. Um, I heard once from a pastor that the enemy does not want us to fill us. He does not want to fill us with the hatred of God, but the forgetfulness of God. And I think with some of these middle school and high schoolers who have been raised in the church and love God, um, they're not thinking about renouncing their faith, but they're easily distracted from their faith. And I think the enemy's clever in in understanding that. And so I read a book called Crazy Busy, and it said that if a Gen Z individual spends two hours a day 
on any social media platform, which is much lower than the daily average today. Over the span of a year, that'll total up to being one month of screen time just on social media. So if they start at 10, by the time they're 21 or 22, they'll have spent a year on social media. Not only is that a distraction, but it's also distorting so many things that pertain to a biblical worldview and, and a Christian upbringing. And so I think understanding how distracting social media can be, not every bit of social media is, is harmful or polluting in its content. It can be great things. It could be even sermon clips or helpful blog posts, but too much of that good stuff can become bad when it becomes a distraction from God. And I think the third category is, is a satisfaction category. And this one probably pertains um, more to me with where I think I've I've been recently. Um, I think of Galatians 1.10, where Paul asks this rhetorical question of, am I seeking the approval of man or of God? Um, there's a check in my heart before I post a sermon clip or an encouraging word or an interpretation of a passage on, like, before I post this, Am I doing this to bring glory to myself or am I posting this to to bring others nearer to the Lord and to encourage them in their Christian walk? And that's also a yes or no question. I think I think it's really easy to be affected by how many comments you get or or people saying, hey, man, that was so good. But ministry, like lots of other jobs, you should not join them if if you were um, struggling with the approval of man, because it's this tough balance of no, no. Compliment should bring us too high and no criticism should bring us too low. And you get lots of them when you choose to do a podcast like this or when you teach on Sunday mornings. Like it, it is a rigorous thing because we're dealing with with sinful people and we're sinful and we're entitled to our opinions at times. And it's it's challenging. But I think the temptation, distraction, and satisfaction categories have have been kind of three checkpoints for my temptation and and and, and challenge with social media. I think that's a great example for parents to really take to their kids, too. Those are three distinct categories that for sure can get everybody. And I would just like to add, because I think that one of the things that we often forget about is there is a, a, a command for us to not covet. And we don't think about the fact that we might make someone else covet by sharing little small things about our life that we probably really in our hearts may just think that we're sharing with friends, or this could bring glory to God in some way, but we never know that. And I think that's something that as Christians, we really need to go back to that commandment when we're allowing our kids to have social media, when we're teaching them to use social media, is that not only should we not covet, we are commanded not to covet as part of the biblical morality and and command to live faithfully, but we should also not do anything that would make someone else covet us. So that's another a good question I think that we can um, parents can teach your kids to apply. That's so good. What boundaries do you have in place now to help you walk faithfully as you, you know, you're in college, lots of temptations, I'm sure, even j- same as high school, but different, managing all of these sort of online temptations. I know I heard you speak about some of them early on when you spoke to high schoolers. Yeah, the question's like, how <laughs> how much would you like me to share? I think I'll, I'll share just a few. The first I guess from my parents' point of view is they had a rule where we couldn't get any social media apps until our senior year of high school. And I think this makes a lot of sense because in their mind, if I interpreted it right, they want to keep us away from it as long as they can in high school. 
but they don't want college to be the first time that we can download it and begin using it when there's no parental guidance. And so that senior year kind of serves as this threshold between finishing high school and also starting college. And I'm thankful for that. Um, one boundary that I think really helps is accountability. And that that's a buzzword along with discipleship and community. And um, I, I wish it wasn't because these are these are very pivotal practices that I, I think we should all have. Um, but for for an, an accountability purpose, uh, I meet regularly with my buddy. We've been doing this for four years. And every night at 9 p.m., we send each other what we've read that day, along with a highlight from the day, a low from the day, a prayer request, and then if we've stayed pure or if we've given into sin. And that is very awkward at first because telling someone your sin struggles is not easy. But James 5.16 makes it very clear. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. And so it's this process of, and First John talks about it a lot, bringing our sin into the light, understanding that when that happens, darkness has to flee. And it's this vulnerable position where we're exposed before a brother or sister in Christ, sharing with them where we've struggled, but then feeling the freedom of that. And I think having accountability is, is very important. I think also making bad habits hard to do. I read a book called Atomic Habits, which which was not a Christian book, but has a lot of honestly unintentional Christian principles in it, which which is which is cool to see. One thing he says is he says, like, make make bad habits hard. So if you're tempted at 11 o'clock at night with your phone, put it on the other side of your room or uh, buy an alarm clock. I've, I've, I've done that before and it's it's been very helpful. But then I think saying something that maybe people haven't heard before, like if you give into sin, it is not back to square one. And I think this idea of streaks and like counting how many days you've, you know, refrained from a certain sin that in the moment is not bad. But I think when you do give in and, and when you do struggle, you feel like you're horrible and worthless and meaningless. And you think that God loves you less or that you've done something to alter um, his view of you. And I think understanding that we're trying to go 24 hours at a time seeking first God's kingdom. And if you give in slash when you give in, his mercies are new. And that's not a sappy Pinterest post. Like that's the inspired word of God. And so with my accountability partner, we're trying to go one and oh every single day. We're not trying to go 365 days without doing X, Y, or Z. We're trying to make it to the end of the day using God's daily bread and yielding to his spirit because we believe in what the son has accomplished. And I think when the approach is these daily battles, it has been revolutionary for my view of temptation and how temptation works. And so I think Proverbs 7 offers a great display of how um, temptation, specifically sexual temptation works. I think 1 Thessalonians 4 really highlights what God's will is for our life. It's one of the only times it directly says what his will is. And it says it's our holiness that we refrain from sexual immorality. And so God's word makes it really clear. And the reality is, we're going to read what we want to, and we can at times be selective readers of scripture to feel better about the sins we struggle with. And these two passages are ones that really convict the heart and address sin for what it actually does. That's awesome. And then is that some of the same message that you would share with when you're talking to middle school and high school students? For the most part, I, I would I would filter, obviously, the level of vulnerability and and how much I would share. But I think if, if I were a seventh or eighth grade boy, the biggest thing I would tell them is that the decisions you're making today 
are going to affect the husband and father you're going to one day be. And just try to have them start thinking down the road of what their future goal is and then to work backwards from that. I think a lot of the times we work from the past forwards and we're driven and held down by past experiences. But I think there's a lot of value in looking at where we want to be, looking at the leaders we want to become like, and then asking ourselves, is this decision moving me closer or further away from that? And that's definitely something that I know a lot of parents try and teach. And our culture is so about immediate gratification instant satisfaction. They want it right now. And that takes teaching. It takes a retraining of our flesh, a retraining of our mind to think to the future and to make decisions that are going to impact the future. So that's a great recommendation. Okay. So as we finish up, if you could offer just one way that you would love to see parents be brave, whether that's just prioritizing time in God's word as a family instead of individual screen time, right? You see that you go to any restaurant, You see everybody on their own devices. You know, maybe it's the need to just kind of turn the internet off because you know your kids are doing bad stuff or you don't know, but you don't want to know either. (laughs) I have a lot of parents who just want to keep their heads buried in the sand, but all of that online media content is leading them away from Christ. We know this, even if they're being raised up in the church and they're getting all these different ideologies from YouTube and TikTok, all of that. So. I kind of give you a lot of examples there, but what advice um, to parents would you give? Man, uh, I feel inadequate to to give them advice, but I think if I could say anything, I would encourage them that the best thing you can give your kids is a healthy marriage and, and marriage that glorifies God. And I'm evidence that I and young students watch you guys way more than you probably think that we do. And Um, I think if marriage is a picture of Christ and his church, I think a good marriage is a constant gospel conversation with your actions, not even your words. Um, Andy Crouch wrote a book on culture and, and, and establishing a healthy culture in the home. And he says in one of his chapters that the only way to change culture is to make more of it. And so I think a practical question to ask is like, what kind of culture do I want my kids growing up in? And then make it happen. Um, And I think realizing that every parent is still a child, meaning they're a child of God. And so to sum all that up, I think my best advice would be to be parented as you parent and realize that you are a child of God before you're a parent to your son or daughter. And there's this vertical and horizontal beauty that's going on as you're learning to be led by Christ as you then lead your children. And I think if, if you can capture both of those, it gives me so much hope to be a parent and a husband and a, and a father one day. And I'm just encouraged by y'all because I know it's hard. And, and as a single guy who's 21, like life's hard enough right now. And I just can't imagine all the hoops that you guys have to jump through and the challenges that preside. So I'm thankful for everyone that is listening to this and, and hope this has been an encouragement to you. Well, that's brilliant advice. And I'm glad you just reminded everybody of your age because they're probably thinking <laughs> this wisdom and this, you know, knowledge and insight that's coming from this young man, he's 21. And it just goes to show that the Lord can do so much to surrendered hearts, to hearts that are just willing to serve and obey. And I thank you for your ministry that you have done amongst all my kids know you because you have either went to school alongside of them or you've preached to them and all look up to you as I know so many young people do. And that's really great. And I know that a lot of parents will be encouraged. So Sam, thank you so much for your time this morning. Yes, you guys are so welcome. Thank you again for having me.
Glory to God. That is all my heart can say when I hear young men like Sam, young women like Mary Catherine, who we had on last week, share their faith and their passion for the faith in the kingdom of God. Here's three constant themes and recommendations that I have heard over and over from all of our guests over the past month. So let me highlight them here. Number one, eat meals with your children. You've heard everyone say it. Make it a priority. This is where relationships and discipleship happen. Keep those phones away from the table too. Y'all go get your RO box, go RO.com, use promo code BRAVE, use the box, keep your phone in there and have screen-free meals with your children. Number two, family devotions and family Bible study is awkward. It is, period. You just need to get over it. Your kids will thank you later in life, which really hammers home the point. We cannot crave our child's instant gratification. Look ahead and do what you need to do knowing that the fruit that you want to see is not going to be produced for a couple of years. You have now heard this from two young Gen Zers. They are eternally grateful and appreciative that their parents did that brave hard work and expected family prayer, expected family devotion and study of his word. And it changed them. So make sure that you make that a priority in your family, no matter how awkward it is. Your kids are going to roll their eyes. Get over it. Number three, hold off on social media. Listen, both Sam and Mary Catherine were not granted permission for social media until after the age of like 16 and 17. And look, I absolutely believe their testimony speaks to the benefit of that delayed social media access. The world was not influencing them with their different ideologies. They were being grounded in truth, grounded in reality during those key developmental years through middle school and early high school. So hold off on social media. Parents, this is why we call it being brave because your kids are not going to like it. Sam didn't like it. Mary Catherine didn't like it. They, They don't. It doesn't feel good to be held back in that way, especially in a culture that says you should be able to do anything and have anything and and live whatever way you want to live. But we know that that doesn't bring freedom. We know that that doesn't develop the character that God desires in our children. And I'm going to add a fourth, even though I said three. Another one is that parents, we really need to gain Bible literacy and theology training ourselves. And if you don't know where to start, I immediately think, uh, grab C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. Like, read it. Listen to it on an audiobook, however you can get it in. It will light your fire for God and His Word and being an accurate theologian. I have listened to it on audio several times. My husband has just read it and listened to it several times, and it just cultivates such fantastic conversation. You can also go to Theology Mom. Take maybe one of her courses on Bible interpretation. Or if you have young ones and you want to learn some basic worldview and attributes of God type of concepts, get some worldview curriculum from Foundation Worldview. Whatever it looks like for you to go deeper, do it. I've never met a single Christian who has regretted the investment of time to go deeper in their faith, especially to do it alongside of their children, to show them and demonstrate this is what it looks like to pursue holiness to live a life of faith, right? We don't want to be hypocrites, especially in front of our children. They will catch that immediately, but be authentic. Share your struggles, 
but also share that this is important. Understanding how to read and interpret God's word is important, and that's why you're going to do it together. All right. I hope you love that interview. I did. Just blew me out of the water. Again, 21 years old. So we're going to, I'm sure, hear and see great things from Sam. Don't forget to leave us a review. It helps tremendously getting the podcast out to other like-minded Christians who are trying to be brave. That's just how the podcast algorithms work. We can share the podcast on social media and whatnot, but the algorithm within the podcast platforms themselves rely on these reviews. So if you love the podcast, give us a five-star review. We really appreciate that. And thank you so much for listening. All right, until next week, y'all go and be brave.